Okay, and I think we're ready to begin. Welcome everybody to this delightful occasion in which we have a thesis theatre where Gina is going to present her work to you. So I'd just like to introduce Gina, first of all. Um, Gina has written the most wonderful uh, thesis on Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights, which is one of my favorite uh, stories of all time. And this one is a fascinating kind of gothic take on it. The title to her thesis is Let Me In, Vampirism in Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights. Okay, welcome, Gina. Hello. Hi, okay. So let's kick this thesis theater off by giving us a brief overview of your thesis. Would you like to do that for us? Sure. Um, so what I did was I did a close reading of Wuthering Heights in the lens of um, looking for any um, indications of vampirism in there. Um, and then from there, I asked the question, okay, if there is, there are vampires, there is vampirism, why? Um, and so I... Um, sort of went from there and figured out a whole um, feminist lens um, and just sort of marginalized characters lens um, and found some really interesting stuff. A feminist lens. I wonder why I enjoyed this so much. <laughs> Okay, thank you for that. Um, all right, everybody. Um, Gina's going to give us a short presentation in a moment on her thesis. So I'm going to invite you, if you have any questions at all to ask Gina, then can you pop them into the Q&A box, preferably not the chat. Feel free to chat away in the chat, but the questions might get lost there. So if you wouldn't mind, if you do have questions, and I would encourage you to um, have them, please put them into the Q&A for us. Okay, Gina, so I believe you have a slideshow to share with us? Yes. Okay. That okay. looks great. All right, I'm going to turn my camera off so that people can focus just on you. All right. Okay. All right. So let me close my little Zoom box here. All right. So um, my thesis title is Let Me In Vampirism in Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights. Okay. Um, so before I dive into the thesis, I just wanted to take a minute to um, sort of explain where this all came from. Um, so I knew that I wanted to do something for my thesis that related back to Dr. Femi's folkloric transformations class. That was my favorite, favorite class that I took at Signum. And um, it really, led me down a path of um, discovery of things that I was really interested in and led me to the area of monster theory. Um, and so I wanted to do something with that. And my my best friend um, had just randomly said, did you know that there's a theory that there's vampires in Wuthering Heights? And I was like, oh, that's, that's interesting. And so I did a little Googling um, I found a blog post on Lit Reactor. Um, I will totally butcher her name. So, but Annie, Annie N. 
Um, and so she said that um, Catherine turns into a vampire. She's not a ghost. And then later at the end of the story, she turns Heathcliff into a vampire. So it's like, hmm. Um, I hadn't read Wuthering Heights since high school. So I figured I would give it a shot. And so I did a rereading of it, strictly looking for any indications of vampirism and was pleasantly surprised. Um, so I was on board with Vampires and Wuthering Heights, um, but was asking the question of why, why would Emily Bronte, Bronte write that? So um, just a quick little refresher um, for anybody who hasn't read Wuthering Heights since high school, or I know that some people watching have never read Wuthering Heights. Um, these are the characters um, really we're focusing on Catherine or Kathy and Heathcliff. Um, and so those are the two characters. They, um, they grew up together with her brother, Henley, um, Kathy and Heathcliff. Cliff love each other, but can never be together. Um, and that's sort of all the, the heartbreak of the novel. Um, but yeah, so we will um, focus on those two characters. Okay, so I did not focus on the entirety of the novel. I really focused on three sections. The beginning of the novel, um, a little bit after that, um, still in like part one, um, and then the very, very end. So there's actually a huge chunk of the novel that I didn't really have to do anything with. Um, it was just the really these three parts that had the vampirism that I was looking for. So um, what I did for this presentation is really tried to um, scale back and um, I have a lot of research done and I have a lot of annotations um, and a lot of evidence uh, and passages, but I tried to pick out just a few from each part just so you could kind of get an idea of, of what I'm talking about. Um, so really the first part is at the very, very beginning of the novel and it's sort of our introduction to the vampire. Um, and so at the beginning of the story, we have this um, sort of outside narrator, um, Mr. Lockwood, he is, is renting property. He ends up staying at Wuthering Heights for the night um, and he gets put in Kathy's old room. He has no idea about any of the history or anything like that. Um, he's having terrible nightmares. And then he um, is hearing like tapping on the window. For some reason, he punches through the glass and we just kind of ignore that. But he's trying to get a tree branch outside and instead a hand grasps him on the wrist. Um, and so it says, the intense horror of nightmare came over me. I tried to draw back my arm, but the hand clung to it and a most melancholy voice sobbed, let me in, let me in. Um, and so that's really the one of the most important passages that I found. Um, and that's because um, something that I go into in the paper are different characteristics of vampirism. And one of them that's been passed down is that vampires have to be invited into the home. They can't just stroll in and bite you. Um, so she is asking to be let in. Um, but as you see in the second passage, 
he says, as it spoke, I discerned obscurely a child's face looking through the window. Um, so I do put this argument in there as well, that this is also, um, this could be a characteristic there. It's in some folklore and not in others, um, but that um, vampires want to look enticing to their prey. So she's trying to look like this poor, helpless, defenseless um, young girl trying to be let in. Um, but he's really freaked out and he um, just is trying to get away from her. Um, it says, Tara made me cruel and finding it useless to attempt shaking the creature off. I pulled its wrist onto the broken pane and rubbed it to and fro till the blood ran down and soaked the bedclothes. Still it wailed, let me in and maintained its tenacious grip, almost maddening me with fear. So this is, should be the moment where you're like, if this is Kathy's ghost, then why is she bleeding? She's putting blood everywhere when he cuts her wrists on the broken window pane. Um, and she doesn't care, um, which, you know, um, vampires might feel pain, um, you know, depending on the folklore, but it doesn't really matter because they're already dead. So, um, it seems like it doesn't bother her that she's bleeding everywhere and that she is has been harmed. Um, she's still grabbing onto him and demanding to be let in. Um, and then Lockwood's screaming wakes everybody up and Heathcliff um, just automatically thinks it's Kathy, knows that it's Kathy. And he says, come in, come in. He sobbed, Kathy, do come. Oh, do once more. Oh, my heart's darling, hear me this time, Catherine at last. And so this is the other important piece of part one where Heathcliff has done the thing. He has invited Kathy in and that's going to set off a chain of events that don't come until the end of the novel. Because after this moment, um, in the morning, Lockwood starts to get the story of Kathy and Heathcliff and Wuthering Heights and everybody from Nellie the maid. And so we sort of like have a flashback from there. Okay. Um, so then the next part I am um, working with is Kathy's transformation. So um, like I said before, there's a lot um, that goes into this. There's a lot, a lot of passages and a lot of evidence. Um, I just picked out a couple things. Um, so there's this, uh, this one that comes up many times. Um, this is Nellie, the maid talking, um, as she never offered to descend to breakfast next morning, I went to ask whether she would have some carried up. The same question was repeated at dinner and tea and again on the morrow after and received the same answer. So, um, we have, um, gone through Kathy and Heathcliff's childhood. Um, there's a part where, Kathy um, tells Nellie that she is never going to be able to marry Heathcliff and Heathcliff runs away. Um, and she was really saying that because she wanted to get married to their neighbor so that then afterwards she would sort of be able to support Heathcliff um, because she would have, you know, some kind of money from somewhere. Um and so Heathcliff has come back and Kathy thinks that she can just have both men and her husband's like, I don't think so. Um, so she sort of has this transformation afterwards. Um, and so at this point, Kathy is very, very pregnant 
and she's not eating anything. She's refusing to eat anything. And Nellie makes reference to this over and over and over. Um, there's also um, lots of um, passages about um, how she is sort of acting a little bit crazy, um, like this one, tossing about. She increased her feverish bewilderment to madness and tore the pillow with her teeth, then raising herself up, all burning, desired that I would open the window. We were in the middle of winter. The wind blew strong from the northeast, and I objected. Both the expressions flitting over her face and the changes of her moods began to alarm me terribly and brought to my recollection her former illness. So this was actually the second time that this strange unnamed illness had come over Kathy. I do make a case that perhaps she had gotten bitten earlier. Um, and um, it's sort of up to interpretation and that maybe now the transformation, um, she has been bitten again, um, but actually to be transformed this time. Um, but she um, has these sort of like fits of madness and um, there's a lot of like focus on her teeth, um, which of course vampires teeth, yes. Um, and Nellie just doesn't know what to do with it because this is so unlike Kathy that, and unlike a sick person that she's not really sure what's going on. Um, she also talks about uh, Kathy's delirious strength was sur much surpassed mine. Um, and so vampires are known to have this sort of super strength um, and this is, you know, somebody who hasn't eaten in a few days is very, very pregnant. Um, and yet she's able to overpower quite easily, um, the maid who's been doing, you know, hard work all her life. Her husband even notices and says months of sickness could not cause such a change. Um, we also have um, some ties to religion that I talk about where Kathy um, on more than one occasion is sort of denouncing her faith um, and religion. So for example, she'll say, I'll not lie there by myself. They may bury me 12 feet deep and throw the church down over me, but I won't rest till you are with me. I never will. Talking about Heathcliff. And so she's sort of almost putting like a curse on them that she's never gonna rest unless Heathcliff is with her. Um, and then finally, the last little bit is Nellie um, telling Heathcliff when he demands to see her for the last time that she is you know, very, very different. Her appearance has changed greatly, her character much more so that Nellie can't, can't understand Kathy's transformation. And of course, how could she? And she's just trying to prepare Heathcliff for that. Um, another thing that I go into with this whole transformation part for Kathy is, you know, um, I just sort of try to give the options that um, here's sort of what could have happened if there was, you know, a vampire in the area and she got bit, or um, there's also some scholarship of maybe she is um, sort of making herself into a vampire, um, just through her own, um, madness, but I sort of lay out the specs for both. Um, and then lastly, we skip all the way to the end. Um, so now Mr. Lockwood has gotten the whole history of Kathy and Heathcliff and Wuthering Heights and everybody. And so now we're, we're caught, we're like just about caught up. Um, and Heathcliff, 
he gives this um, very strange um, admission that he says, I'll tell you what I did yesterday. I got the sexton who was digging Linton's grave to remove the earth off her coffin lid and I opened it. I thought once I would have stayed there when I saw her face again, it is hers yet. So this is an important piece because um, Heathcliff pays the sexton to um, disturb Kathy's grave and there's not, you know, a, a skeleton there. She's been dead for a very long time, like maybe 20 years, um, that she looks exactly the same as if she has been preserved. Um, and so, you know, why that would be strange, but if she were a vampire, then sure, just kind of hanging out in there. Um, and this is, this could be, um, I sort of argue why um, after this is where um, she sort of appears to Lockwood to get into Wuthering Heights. So it could be that Heathcliff has sort of like awakened her um, for her to come out. Um, so then now we are all caught up. We're now in the present. Um, it's after the whole thing with Mr. Lockwood. And um, Heathcliff begins to act really strangely. Um, he's going out at night and just like wandering the moors by himself when he thinks everybody has gone to bed and Nellie um, listens out for him and he never comes back. He's just out there doing who knows what, which if Kathy's whole thing is that she wants to make Heathcliff a vampire so they can be together. It makes sense. You know, they're out there wandering around together. Um, and then we have a lot, a lot, a lot of description about his transformation. Um, so this is an example um, that he has this um, unnatural appearance of joy um, because he would be really happy. All he's ever wanted is Kathy. And now that she has has come back and maybe he can't understand why he, it doesn't matter to him because he's soon going to be with Kathy forever. Um, he's, he has a bloodless sort of pallor, um, his teeth. Um, again, there's lots of description about his teeth, um, and that he's shivering, not because he's cold, but because he's like so excited for what's to come. Um, again, with him, he also stops eating completely. Um, there's lots of moments where he like goes to try to eat something and he can't, um, you know, because vampires are sustained on blood. So if this is part of the transformation, it's like he knows he's hungry, but he has human food in front of him, but he doesn't want to eat that and he can't understand why. He even says at some point, I like I am, I know I'm hungry, but I can't seem to eat this. Um, he stopped breathing during half a minute together. So it's sort of like his body is shutting down, um, for the transformation until finally, um, he, Nellie finds him and he has died. He's died in Kathy's old bedroom. Um, and he has this hand, um, that looks like it's been wounded from that broken window they haven't fixed. Um, and yet there's no blood at all. Um, so, you know, if he's been drained because he's been turned into a vampire, could work. Um, and then finally, the very, very, very end right after that, we have um, a couple different people um, have told Nellie that they've seen Heathcliff and Kathy 
Um, well, they don't seem to know it's Kathy. Maybe they just don't remember Kathy because it's been a long time, but they see Heathcliff and they see a woman and they're just walking the moors together. Um, so from there, um, sort of intertwined with all of this, um, I have some scholarship in there of answering the why, like why would Emily Bronte have vampires? What, what is the, you know, the motive? So I go into different characteristics um, and lore about vampires um, and, you know, trying to focus on what probably would have been known at the time. Um, I know that there's a lot of more modern um, characteristics that we have today that come out in TV and movies and, and books and so on, that, but that might not have been around back then. Um, I also sort of focus on, this is a commentary that Bronte has on marginalized society. So um, we don't know a lot um, about her, um, but she, we do have some letters and things that she's written. And in these things, she um, has written about how she felt her society was unnatural. And so, and how um, that perhaps, you know, things aren't the way they should be. And so having this strong female character who wants to be free from her society and the only way she can do that is to turn into a monster is, you know, something that can certainly be argued. And then you have Heathcliff, who in the original version is a Roma that um, he's another marginalized character. He is viewed as less than because of who he is and can never be with Kathy. So he then turns into a monster. I mean, he turns into a monster during the whole novel, but then he turns into this other type of monster so that he and Kathy can be together. Um, and then I also talk about how um, at this time, um, it was a common trope for novels to have a character that um, has some kind of illness or something, and then they come out of it changed for the better. Um, and so they certainly are changing. Um, I think at the time, Bronte society would not have thought they changed for the better, but I think that we could argue that they they do because they end up being together and free from their society so they can just sort of be together um, and be free. Um, okay, so that is a very short um, rundown of everything. Thanks, Gina. Absolutely wonderful. Um, if you'd like to stop sharing screen. Uh, oh, there it is. It's on the bottom. Clearly, that's it. Thank you very much. Fascinating stuff. Um, I hope everybody enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed reading through this when Gina was actually doing the writing. OK, so um, I'm going to ask Gina some questions in a moment, but let me encourage you to put your own questions into the question box if you've got anything you would like to ask her about her work. But uh, while people are thinking about what you've just presented, Gina, can you explain to us how and why you chose that particular topic? Yeah, so um, I just knew from my love of 
Dr. Feeney's class that I really wanted to do something with that. Um, and it's led me down the path of um, learning more and more about monster studies and how I just didn't even know that was, you know, a field that you could study. Um, and that's something that I'm really, really interested in, just not um, because monsters are cool, but, you know, where do they come from and why? And seeing all of these um, you know, cultural significances um, has just been really interesting. And so um, from there, um, I, my, my best friend had um, just randomly was like, I heard this. And then I just kind of got sucked in after I reread Wuthering Heights and I didn't want to do anything else. Mm, the vampire is such a interesting figure in culture and so culturally embedded um the history of the vampire in culture is absolutely fascinating so um i was delighted when you were talking about this and applying it to wuthering heights which i hadn't done but then i hadn't read wuthering heights since high school pretty much like so many other people but it gave me a fascinating new focus on that story um so tamara has a question um, which actually kind of connects with a question I was going to ask you. Um, she asks, what kind of vampire literature predates Bronte? And I was going to ask you if Bronte wrote Wuthering Heights in 1847 and Bram Stoker wrote Dracula in 1897, would Bronte have been familiar with vampire stories at the time of her writing? So those two questions really do mesh well together. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so, um, yes. Um, short answer, yes. Um, so a lot of what we um, take today is because of Dracula, but for Bronte, um, there were some Penny Dreadfuls out there, um, like Barney the Vampire um, was very popular, um, but then we also had um, Carmilla, Camilla, Carmilla, um, was out there and was also very, very popular. So there actually was, um, a, there were a few vampire things out there in literature um, that she most likely would have been aware of, um, as well as just, you know, the the folk history that everybody just sort of got passed down with. Absolutely. I, I mean, famously, um, one of the first in English was John Polidori's The Vampire, which um, predates uh, the other ones that you mentioned as well. But um, they come in at the beginning of the first Gothic revival. Um, and we know, of course, that Bronte was absolutely fascinated with the Gothic. Um, and by the time she was writing, the idea of the vampire was thoroughly embedded uh, in the idea of the Gothic. But as you say, so many stories actually from a long time before it enters popular literature uh, that are passed down through various cultures, right? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the next question. How do you think Kathy would have been turned into a vampire? Ooh, um. So I had two, two things that I sort of looked at. Um, there was one where um, my second reader, Dr. Dickinson, had sort of pushed me on that um, 
maybe metaphorically, Kathy undergoes this transformation where she, um, you know, she's maybe not turning into a literal vampire, but um, is still, you know, vampiric. Um, so I, I offer that side of things. Um, but then if you're somebody that's like, no, I, I want real vampires. Um, I thought about the, the, when the night that Heathcliff runs away, Kathy, um, runs outside and there's a whole section, um, in my paper where she's outside by herself. Um, it's nighttime. She's out there all night that, she could have gotten bitten then because then she gets very, very ill. Nobody knows what's wrong with her. She's sick for a long time. Um, so it could be that she had been drained, but then she's okay. Um, but then perhaps another vampire comes um, when Heathcliff comes back months later and, um, and you know, the transformation happens then. Um, mm -hmm. That's kind of my theory. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. All right, so here's the thing about when this was being written, right? Um, England was still very much a Christian country, and the whole concept of vampirism really works against that. And you were talking about um, how Kathy seemed to be rejecting her religion, uh, rejecting belief. Uh, as she was changing and becoming something, whether she's becoming a vampire or not, of course, all down to different people's interpretation, but she's certainly changing. Um, so do you read Kathy and Heathcliff's vampirism as some form of punishment then, given the time and place in which it's set? So I, I like to think two things. I like to think that the the readers of the day if they caught on to this um that they would have felt satisfied that you know Kathy who um makes these statements against her religion um which would have been you know crazy to make um especially by a woman um and that she's very wild and Heathcliff um you know, he's Roma, so people don't really care so much about him. I feel like people would have been like, yes, okay, they turn into monsters, they deserve to turn into monsters. But I think um, for, for us, and we can sort of see the way Emily was thinking aligns with how we think today that they're not being punished, that this was the only way that they could be together in their society. And so it's not really that they're transforming into monsters. They're just transforming into something else so that they can be free forever and live how they always wanted to live. Mm -hmm. So a great Gothic romance uh, from a 21st century lens then. Mm -hmm. mm. So do you think that that was the story that Emily Bronte was trying to tell, not the punishment version, but the great Gothic romance version? I think so. I like to think so. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, because what also interests me is that um, if Heathcliff becomes a vampire, he becomes other, right? But he's already other because he's Roma. 
and he is uh, an outcast in society. He cannot be with Kathy um, because social norms mean that it is forbidden. So he's already other, right? So is it worse or no different for him to become a vampire? Yeah, I feel like it's almost, I feel like it's almost worse um, that I think just, you know, from like a, a racism point of view that people are like, yeah, you know, he's, he's even worse now and he deserves that. Whereas for us in the, you know, in this century, we're like, oh, okay. He's, you know, he's just transforming so that he can be his real self without any restrictions. Mm -hmm. So the perception of the vampire uh, as a figure has really changed since Bronte's time, right? Mm -hmm. So the vampire is now more of a romantic figure than perhaps it was back in Bronte's time? Mm -hmm. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Are there other examples from modern vampire fiction that uh, you thought about while you were investigating the vampiric nature of Wuthering Heights? Um, well, I mean, I try not to think of Twilight, but... Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> Cool. We, <laughs> we had um read um the first book in the true blood series in dr femi's class and that like you know sent me spiraling into reading the entire series um but um i also was a huge huge fan of i am legend and mm. um you know the the vampires in there that you know, when you realize they're not the monster, we're the monsters. Um, so I think that was like a huge turning point. Mm -hmm. mm, yes, the, the way in which it kind of turns around um, from the idea that the vampire is always the monster to somehow not necessarily is, is a fascinating uh, study of society itself, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, right. So turning from specifics about your thesis, let's think about the process that you went through, because let's face it, it's a big process and it demands a lot of you, doesn't it? Yes. Uh-huh. Um, you did a lot of research for this, as all the students do, they are doing their master's thesis. Did you come across anything that surprised you that you weren't expecting? Yeah. Um, so I read a lot, a lot, a lot, um, a lot of things that um, I didn't end up using, but just were like so fascinating. Um, but I think coming across things um, like the very little that's out there about Bronte herself, I think was really interesting. And I think that that really helped me cement what I was thinking um, was really going somewhere that, you know, she, she herself seemed like she didn't fit in, in that society and in that time period. Um, and it just made me start looking at things in a different way. So what sort of details did you come across that told you that, um, she didn't really fit in her own time? Um, and, one of the books that I was reading, um, they were talking about different letters and different essays that she had written. And she, um, she just sounded very outspoken. 
um, which, you know, is, was not a thing back then. Um, but she wasn't afraid to sort of speak her mind. Um, and that also reminded me of Kathy, who is, um, you know, supposed to be very wild in Wuthering Heights. Um, but just her, her views on society were so modern that, you know, she just felt like this isn't how it's supposed to be. And, um, she didn't want to live in this type of society. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, isn't it? That both she and her sisters wrote Gothic novels. Um, given what you just said, is there a connection, do you think, and I'm just kind of thinking out of my own head at the moment, is there a connection, do you think, between that kind of attitude that Emily Bronte had um, and the way in which she just perhaps did not fit right in the society in which she was situated? Do you think there's a connection between that and the fact that actually within the Gothic genre, there's a plethora of female writers in this time. So many women writers turning to the Gothic. Yeah, I think that women were starting to realize that they could be more and that they should be seen as more, but the constraints of society, you know, wouldn't really lend them to opportunities. And so one opportunity could be that I, you know, I, I could write something. Um, and, you know, Emily Bronte and her sisters, they had to pretend they were men, of course, but um, it didn't matter, you know, their, their words were still out there. Right, right. Um, yeah, it, it's always struck me that um, all of those elements of the Gothic uh, like the outsider, the other, the supernatural, all those things seem to really speak to certain kind of women in that, uh, a woman in that time. And I do think that's really interesting. Um, okay, so apart from all this reading you had to do and you come across stuff that you found really interesting, the writing process, right? Because you do all of this reading and then you've got to turn it into your own piece of work. So... One of the problems that students often come across is, well, they start off thinking, oh, 10 to 15,000 words, that's plenty. And then they start writing and realize that, oh, that is not actually plenty. I need far more space. And you've got to start taking out some of your core ideas because there just isn't room for it. I don't think I've had any thesis student yet who hasn't had to cut at least one core idea that they've been hoping to put into their work so can you tell us was there anything that you wanted to include in your thesis that you had to leave out or certain ideas or aspects that you wanted to pursue but couldn't I think I would have wanted to include more excerpts from um, Bronte's letters and essays um, that we have just to sort of highlight it a little bit more um, and I think I would have liked to have gone a little bit more in depth um, with maybe like the Roma culture, just mm -hmm. to, to explain that a little bit more and why um, that would, you know, automatically make Heathcliff this outsider. Mm -hmm. um, I would, if I had more space, I would definitely take more time with those things. Mm -hmm. So put some more cultural context in. Mm -hmm. 
Did you actually do any reading about perceptions of Roma in the 19th century? Um, a little bit here and there, um, but I didn't, I didn't focus solely on that, but I, I would like to, um, if I have the opportunity to make it longer, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know it's not good. So, well, I mean, it still is not good. It's still not good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So there are students out there who are either about to begin their thesis process or are looking at it as coming up within the next year or so. Would you have any advice for these people? Um, something that you've picked up, learned through your own experience of going through the thesis process? I would say start by asking yourself what you're interested in and, and go from there. Um, I wouldn't pick your most favorite thing in the universe because you might end up becoming really sick of it <laughs> at the end. Um, but I would pick something that interests you. And then as you start to do research, just be really open with the things that you're finding um, because you might think that you have an idea and you're, you go left and you end up writing something else. I thought I was going to write about I Am Legend and I had read all this research into I Am Legend and then it sort of derailed into something else entirely. Um, but even um, a lot of the things that I read for this thesis that I didn't end up using, I think was still really valuable just for my, you know, my studies as a whole. Um, and that can lead me down to writing um, other papers in the future. Mm, let's hope so. <laughs> what would you say was the hardest thing that you encountered during the process? What was the toughest element for you? Which could be something to do with the thesis itself. It could be something to do with, um, you, you know, the, the process. Um, what was the toughest thing? I think, I think maybe the toughest thing was just trying to sit down and outline my thoughts of, okay, this is my question. This is the information I have, but how am I going to put it all together? Um, because I had actually never written something that long before. So um, I had to figure out, you know, how am I going to put all of these things together and um, I know as a teacher, I make my students do outlines all the time and I don't like doing them personally, but like, you have to, <laughs> you have to. And I, you know, shared that with them, um, when they were writing their own papers, like you, you have to have some kind of a guide to help you because you can't just sit down and write a thesis. <laughs> Absolutely not. So can I ask you then how you approached creating that structure? What was your process for doing that? Um, I sort of put down the things that I knew I had, I like I had down pat first. So um, like the, my close readings, like mm -hmm. I had I put those all in. And then from there, I sort of figured where I could start 
um, intertwining the research and like, okay, so this section, I could really get into um, some um, of like the feminist lens over here. I can start to get into um, just like the cultural background of the time period, you know, things like that. Um, so that once I could see something in front of me, it became a little bit clearer of where I could weave my mm -hmm. research. Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes sense. Okay, um, there's some nice comments for you in the chat box. I've been keeping a little bit of an eye on that. Um, Tamara says that that all made so much sense and thank you. Courtney said, brilliant, so many details she didn't catch or completely overlooked. And Takako said, yes, female monsters are cool. And Takako, you're not wrong, female monsters are cool. They're really interesting. Um, and when you were talking about um, whether it was a punishment or not for Kathy and Heathcliff to be turned into vampires and decided that from at least a 21st century perspective, it was not. Uh, Tamara said, maybe now they can be equals because they're both outside human categories now. So yeah, yeah. Um, good points all, thank you. So if there are no other questions, what I wanna do now is congratulate Gina because what, you, the audience, see is the end product of months of hard work and dedication and just putting one foot in front of the other, even when it's difficult. Uh, and I don't think any thesis student gets to this point without acknowledging that there are points of difficulty when it comes to writing a piece of this size and depth. So I'd like to present to you all Gina Petroni, who has now passed her master's degree with Signum and a large and hearty round of applause to you. Absolutely fantastic. Well done. It's Thank a cracking achievement and you should be extremely proud of yourself. Thank you. I could not have done it without you. <laughs> <laughs> you probably could, but no, you're welcome. It was a lot of fun working with you. Uh, and um, I've always been very interested in the Gothic and in uh, the vampire as a figure. So this was a lot of fun for me to work with as well. So, And I'd also like to thank um, Dr. Brenton Dickieson, who acted as Gina's second reader and did such a marvellous job to help you in the, uh, the latter stages of your thesis process. So thank you a lot. Brenton. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for attending this thesis theatre. It's lovely to have people come along to support Gina and, uh, and to show her that uh, you appreciate the hard work that she has put into this, um, this wonderful piece of writing, which will be deposited in the Signum Library. So any Signum student will be able to check out that thesis and have a look for yourself at all the wonderful work that Gina has done. So on that note, thank you very much, Gina. I'll be seeing you at graduation. <laughs> thank okay. you. All right, thank you very much. And we are done. Congratulations, Gina. Thank, Thank you, you, everybody. Thank you, everyone. See you next time.